0: Well, thank you so much, folks. It's just a real joy to be with you again this morning. And I want to share with you something that has been a huge blessing in my heart. And my prayer is that it will be a blessing in your heart too. There are three passages in the New Testament that give us concentrated teaching about Jesus. You probably know Hebrews, Colossians, and Philippians 2 but there's a little phrase in Colossians chapter 1 that is just magnificent. And I, I want to try to uh, show you some of the implications that's wrapped up. Colossians 1 verse 15, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Well, that tells us two things. Uh, first of all, it tells us that God is invisible. That's not difficult to work that one out. But then it tells us that the son, and that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So if God is invisible and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it follows that if we want to know what God's like, we we look at Jesus because he reveals the invisible God to us. So the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's the really uh, grab hold of that because that's kind of undergirding everything we're going to think about this morning. Uh, About 40 years ago, uh, I was in Nigeria for a couple of months as a Bible college student. I I was sent off not to do mission work, but just to stick my toe in the mission pond, as it were, to see if I could cope with the temperature. And uh, I was in a place called Bauchi, which is about 80 miles east of Jos, Nigeria, about halfway up Nigeria. And uh, I was sent to uh, a church called the Evangelical Church of West Africa, the ECWA church. And I was told just to preach. So I had 33 meetings to preach at in 35 days. And it was just wonderful. The church that I was in, um, it it seated about a thousand people. And there was a lean-to, an annex just next door. And there was maybe 250 folks sitting in that and there were people hanging in the windows. And on a Sunday morning, uh, it was quite marvelous because there were maybe four white faces in the church, one of which was mine. And after the first Sunday morning, they came to me, uh, the, the elders of the church and said, look, don't preach for half an hour. We want you to preach for an hour, which of course was wonderful uh, for 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 a preacher. But I can remember doing a whole series of different services for them. I went, went to a leprosarium and I, Preached in a Bible college, and I was preaching out in the bush—not exactly under a tree, but in a mud hut, uh, which was interesting. And I had uh, uh, my meal with the the tribal local tribal chief, which was very interesting. He told me that he'd he'd got Irish potatoes, especially for me, which was very kind of him. Uh, however, I can remember one evening that we had what they called a revival mission, where they showed this. Very old film, um, which was explaining the gospel in a dramatic way to the people. And as I looked at that, it struck me that the Jesus in this film was very unlike the people who were watching the film. So I remember saying something that really generated a response. And the response to what I said really impacted me. You see, I said, look, Jesus wasn't white. He came from the part of the world where black meets white meets yellow. And they were really, they never thought about that before because they had kind of thought that Jesus was Anglo-Saxon with blonde hair and blue eyes. But Jesus wouldn't have been like that at all. So that resonated with the congregation. All, all the films that I'd seen portraying Jesus had portrayed him uh, uh, as Anglo-Saxon, white uh, with blonde hair, and as I say, blue eyes. And I can remember watching one film at an outreach event in Ireland And my spiritual mum, just a lovely, lovely, delightful lady, who was such a blessing to me, she got really upset when she looked at the actor who was playing the part of Jesus, because he had a mole on his cheek somewhere. And she thought that a mole in that, on his cheek, was kind of disfigured him. And that upset her greatly. And yet, I couldn't square that with what Isaiah said, because Isaiah 53 says, speaking of Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So Jesus wasn't good looking. He wasn't bad looking, he was just ordinary. He didn't have blue eyes and he wasn't wasn't white. And in the films, Jesus recites his lines evenly and often without emotion. He strides through life as one calm character amongst a cast of calm extras. Nothing rattles him. He dispenses wisdom in a flat measured way. He is in short described by some as the Prozac Jesus. And yet how differently Jesus is portrayed in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we we see him presented as a man who had so much charisma that people were prepared to sit for three days just to listen to his riveting preaching. He seemed excitable, impulsive. Sometimes he was moved with compassion or filled with pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses, sudden sympathy, um, for a person with leprosy, exuberance over his disciples' successes, a blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists. legalists. And on that last time he journeyed into Jerusalem and looked over the city, he burst into tears. Uh, And literally, it doesn't mean that a tear trickled down his cheek, it means he howled, burst into tears. And then those awful cries of anguish at Gethsemane and on the cross. He had nearly inexhaustible patience with individuals, but no patience at all with all the institutions and the injustice that went on. It has been said that we men often struggle to get in touch with our emotions. I'm not really quite sure what that means, but that is said of men today. It's hard for us to break out of the restricted stereotypes of masculinity but jesus lived out an ideal for masculine fulfillment that 20 centuries later still eludes most men three times at least he cried in front of his disciples he never hid his fears or hesitated to ask for help he said my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death he told them in gethsemane stay here and keep watch with me and we just wonder how many strong leaders today would make themselves quite so vulnerable now I, Isaiah uh takes in a whole the whole of creation at a glance and tells us that God is in a category all of his own look he says in chapter 40 verse 25 to whom will you compare me or who is my equal says the holy one so h- how can we describe god because we have no one to compare god with he's in a category all of his own. Look at verse verse 12. It says, speaking of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. Now that's not telling us that God has big hands. Absolutely not at all. It's just telling us that Um, while we to us the universe is is absolutely bigger than we can possibly imagine and yet god for god um it's easily manageable look at verse 26 as i says lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all of these In fact, if you go to the creation account in Genesis, it it just says as a kind of an afterthought, he made the stars also. And and yet we're discovering that there are galaxies out there that we know nothing about. And space seems to stretch way beyond our ability to comprehend. It's absolutely massive. But to God, it's easily manageable. So we see here something of the infinite power of God now in contrast to that Isaiah gives us an insight into another another aspect of God's character look at look at verses 10 and 11 see the sovereign lord comes with power so who is it talking about it's talking about the sovereign lord see the sovereign law comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Isn't that interesting? He gently leads those who have young. We have this beautiful picture of God uh, carrying his lambs and gently leading his sheep. This is an an encouraging glimpse of God, isn't it? There is an extraordinary and amazing gentleness here. And what a contrast. Now, a familiar passage that gives us insight into the character of the one who is the image of the invisible God is found in Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls so jesus is the image of the invisible god we've learned from isaiah that god says that he gently leads those who have young so we we ask well if god the father says he's gentle can we see gentleness in jesus because he's the Im- he's the image of the invisible god well in this text he tells us that i am gentle i am gentle so god is invisible jesus reveals god to us if god is gentle well then we have to see that gentleness revealed in jesus and here he tells us for i am gentle and humble in heart so we learn that jesus is gentle how wonderful is that gentleness is is very difficult to define. Uh, the, the word that's used in the text is sometimes translated as gentle and sometimes it's translated as meekness. But gentleness is difficult to define because it's often confused with meekness. But understand this, that gentleness is an active trait describing the manner in which we treat others. And meekness is a passive trait describing the appropriate response when others mistreat us and gentleness is illustrated by the way in we in which we handle things that are really fragile I don't think I'll ever forget when my first son was born uh, he was 10 12 he was a bit of a monster and the midwives checked him for school bags uh, and sandals that was the first thing they did and then they handed him to me and I was terrified in case I would drop him. I'll never forget holding my eldest son in my arms for that very first time. A number of years later, I was uh, sending some photographs to my mother uh, of, of the children. And I stuck a label to the envelope saying, fragile handle with care. And, and it's true, isn't it? Children need to be handled very gently. We have to handle them with care. Gentleness and meekness are born of power and not of weakness. I, I don't know if you've ever jumped on a horse or ridden a horse. Uh, I used to when I was young and then I got frightened because one, one time a horse bolted on me and I was terrified, thought I was going to fall off and die. But, but when they take a horse and, and they break the horse, They put a saddle on him for the very first time. They talk about gentling the horse. And a horse is much stronger than we are. It can run faster and farther than we can. But a horse needs to be gentled. In other words, its power needs to be brought under control. And in the Isaiah reading, we see stressed the infinite nature of God's power. But we also see beautifully portrayed his gentleness the shepherd who carries his lambs close to his heart and gently leads those who have young and remember Isaiah said we all like sheep have gone astray so just to be sure that there's no misunderstanding here that we are his sheep and he gently leads us and if we're young like lambs he carries us in his arms and that takes strength God's strength to be truly gentle. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We know that we can't see God, but Jesus reveals God to us. So we want to look at an incident in the life of Jesus that reveals his gentleness to us this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 8. And we'll read... um, the first 11 verses, verse 53 of the, the last verse of the preceding uh, chapter says that, that then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin let him be the first to throw a stone at her again he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this those who heard him began to go away one at a time the older ones first until only jesus was left with a woman still standing there jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What an interesting passage of scripture. We see, first of all, the attitude of the religious leaders. You see, these men shamelessly use the woman as a means of trapping jesus you see they thought if they could get jesus to say well okay let's stone her according to the law of moses uh they would be able to accuse him of breaking roman law and if he didn't say stone let's stone her they could accuse him of ignoring the prophets so they thought that they had jesus between a rock and a hard place and they were absolutely going to uh give him uh, put him in a situation from which he couldn't escape but they had absolutely no concern for the woman it says they brought uh, the teachers of law and the pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group now as the saying goes it takes two to tango doesn't it so where was the man why did they just bring the woman where was the man The likelihood the man was in the back of the crowd somewhere with a smile on his face. But these religious leaders, they didn't care for this woman. They shamed her. They had maybe even engineered this whole thing so that this woman was used. They had no concern for her. It was only in the presence of Christ that she found mercy. So what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus knew exactly what they were up to because he always knows what's going on in our minds. He knows, he knew, he was neither naive nor cynical, but his attitude was characterized by a wonderfully gentle compassion. He knew her sin and he knew her shame, but as he looked at her, he saw not just the act of adultery, He knew the potential within her and as he looked at her he loved her and you know it was a love that in truth goes way beyond our ability to explain. Let's just think about that for a moment. I don't know if you have a family or or if you have have a family if any of your children have have ever sat on your knee and looked into your eyes and said dad or, or mom do you love me? Well You respond, but of course I love you. And you probably give them a kiss. And then the child might say, why do you love me? And how do you answer that question? Why do you love me? How do you answer? There just isn't really an answer that's adequate for that. You can't say I love you because you're good, because they might be good in that moment, but they're not always good. At least my kids weren't. And actually, if you say kids to kids all the time, you're good, you're good, you're good, they'll end up believing you and that'll damage them. So you can't say, I love you because you're good. That's conditional love. And the truth is you would love your child even if they weren't good. And they'll never cease to be your child. If you told your child, I only love you when you're good and the child disappoints you, then the child would have good reason to doubt your love. So you can't say I love you because you're good. And you can't say I love you because you're beautiful, because truth be told, your child might be the most beautiful child in the world to you, but we're all average. We all put our trousers on one leg at a time, as they as they say. We're all, we're all the same. And even if your child wasn't beautiful, surely you would you would love your child anyway. And nor can you say, I love you because you're mine, because you would love the child even if the child wasn't yours and were adopted. That child would become yours and you would love them. So why do you love the child? Well, you love him in part because you understand him, but that doesn't explain your love. Love is unexplainable. The best you can say is that love is divine and that you love him because God himself has loved us. So Jesus looked at this woman, and he loved her. He looked at her, and he loved her. And instead of condemning the woman, we read that though they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we're not told what he wrote, so we don't really know. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And again, we're not told what he wrote. But I wonder, did he write things like dishonest in business, cheating on your wife, stealing from your friends, hypocrite we don't know what he wrote but what we do know is that the only sound was the thud of the stones as they dropped them to the ground and they moved away and then jesus straightened up and he said to the woman where are they Has no one condemned you? And can you imagine that woman's heart speaking to Jesus saying, no no, no one, sir, she said. And then Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Wasn't that beautiful? Wasn't it beautiful that Jesus would say that to her? He didn't lecture her. But understand that this was neither easy nor was it cheap, because it wasn't long before Jesus himself would pay the bill for that forgiveness on the cross. If you like, the blood of Jesus would run down the cross and pool at the bottom, but then it would reach out to that woman caught in adultery, and it would cleanse her and take the adultery and bring it back to the cross where it fell on Jesus and he died for forgiveness how beautiful but Jesus challenged her to change as he confronts you and I to walk in truth and in obedience to him let me ask you this morning as you look back over your Christian lives how has God dealt with you. When I realized that Jesus knows the darkest parts of my heart and all the stuff that goes on that I would hate others to know about, just imagine for a moment you had inset into your forehead a little television screen that showed in high definition, technicolor, your thought life. Don't you think you'd have a fringe? because you wouldn't want others to see. And if you didn't have a fringe, you'd go and buy one and wear a wig. Isn't that right? You wouldn't want people to know everything that went on in your mind, particularly in those unguarded moments. Well, Jesus knows. He knows absolutely everything that goes on in our minds. And yet the scripture says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How amazing is that? I never forget when I, as a very young Christian, I thought, well, okay, God has forgiven all my past sins. Now it's up to me. I've got to live a life that, 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 that turns its back on sin. But you know, the harder I tried, the more I failed. I just couldn't. And it was just awful. I thought, well, maybe I'm not a Christian or maybe I'm just a rotten Christian. Maybe I'm never going to be anything different. And then I came to understand that when Jesus died on that cross all those years ago, none of my sins had been committed. So he died for my sins that were in the future. And then wonder of wonders, I I understood that he knew full well what would mark my life. Not only before I became a believer, but he would he knew what kind of a believer i would be he knew that there would be days when my worship would be hard and cold days when i wouldn't bother to think about him days when i would when i would choose not to read the bible days when i would let him down by turning my back on somebody's question about faith days when i would be a really poor witness he knew all of that And yet, wonder of wonder, he still chose to love me. And his love has been expressed in such gentle ways. Oh, I have needed a a clip around the ear and a kick from behind on many occasions. But he doesn't work like that because he's gentle. And somebody has said that, If we are to be like Jesus, then we are to be gentle too, but perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. And sometimes in churches, where there is an absence of gentleness, it it can be very painful and very distressing for us, but very distressing for Jesus too think about Jesus, we, we sing at Christmas time, uh, Christmas carols, and here's one, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But it's, it's, verse two is interesting, it says the cattle are lowing, the baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, do you think that was accurate? Of course it's not, Jesus stepped as deity into humanity, he was exactly like us, And a baby has no method of communicating the fact that one of two ends needs attention other than crying. So when Jesus was in the crib, he cried. Of course he did. Gentle, but fully divine, but also human. We see that rather marvelously in an event that happened in John two. This event actually happened twice. There's a picture of the the temple, a map of the temple. And it's interesting to note that the outer court is known as the court of the Gentiles. That's where Gentiles were allowed to go. So we learn that it was God's heart that the Gentiles should know something uh, about him they could come to the temple they couldn't go into the temple into the inner part where the court of the women are or the court of the priests they couldn't go that far in but because god wanted them to come to grab hold of some kind of an idea of of the whole principle of sacrifice that a sacrifice being offered for the forgiveness of sins that was always god's heart we know that when god Uh, When the incarnation came, when Jesus arrived and was born, the news of his birth was announced to who? First of all, it was announced to the, the shepherds. Well, they were almost certainly Jewish. But it wasn't only announced to the shepherds. Didn't the wise men come from the east? Of course they did. They followed the star. So it was always God's heart for not only his people to know him, but for the Gentiles, for the rest of us to know him too. Now, do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch when he came to Jerusalem? He was looking for God, wasn't he? But he didn't find God, did he? He wouldn't have been allowed as a eunuch to go into the court of the Gentiles, but he he would have been allowed to stick his head and look in around the corner and just have a look in. What would he have seen in the temple? Well, we know that when people came to make an offering, they couldn't bring the currency of the day because it had the image of the Roman emperor on it. They had to use just temple currency. So where did they get the temple currency? Well, there were money changers in the temple and these guys were up for making a few bob. So they would exchange the currency of the day Uh, for temple currency and not only that if you were coming to thank god for the birth of your baby you you would if you were poor you would bring a dove or but but where would you get a dove well there were people with doves in the temple selling them and if you had a bit more money and you wanted to offer something a bit more substantial you maybe offered a a lamb or or a, a cow or a bull or whatever it was Now think of this, wherever you have livestock, you have all the stuff that livestock leave behind with the smells that accompany livestock. So here was the Ethiopian eunuch coming but he he couldn't find God, he couldn't catch a glimpse of God because the court of the Gentiles was full of commercial activity and all of the stuff that animals (laughs) leave behind. So Twice we read that Jesus went into the temple. The first time in John 2, verses 13 to 16, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sow doves, he said, get out of here. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So there you have this picture of gentle Jesus making a whip and standing eyes blazing and voice thundering, turning over the tables, driving the people out of the temple. Now notice, it doesn't say that he destroyed property. He didn't release the doves. So on the one hand, we have the gentleness of Jesus. But on the other hand, we have his righteous anger. So Jesus for us is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God's like, we look at Jesus. We love him because he first loved us so how has he dealt with us well i can't speak for you though i'm pretty sure i could i know that he has dealt with me in gentleness how marvelous it is to be able to look to jesus who is the image of the invisible god and to say lord We know that you get angry with sin, but how marvelous it is that the Father's anger is not directed at us. It's directed to Jesus. As the hymn writer says, in my place condemned, he stood. Hallelujah, what a savior. So as you think back upon your journey, And think of the ways in which God has dealt with you. Just remember, Jesus has been so gentle. Because God the Father is gentle. But that's not the end of the character of God. There are too many facets to his character for us to pick up and try to deal with this morning. But this is just one facet which just causes my heart to overflow, overflow with thankfulness. And I'm sure that if you think about it, you'll remember times when he's gen- dealt with you very gently. I'm so grateful he's never withdrawn his hand of kindness. He's never turned away and walked, walked away from me. And he never will. It's marvellous, isn't it, to be able to look at Jesus and to see the Father revealed in him let's pray together oh father we thank you so very much for jesus we thank you that he reveals you to us and we thank you for his gentleness that he never lost his temper with his disciples when they were slow to learn he never he never shouted at them for their having stiff necks and hard hearts he just loved them And he repeated his teaching so that they could begin to understand. And we thank you that's the way that you've dealt with us. And Lord, if this morning there's somebody listening and and they're going through a particular struggle, oh Lord, we pray that you'd make them wonderfully aware of your gentleness, that their hearts might know a measure of relief and comfort. So, Lord, please, we just commit one another to you, thanking you for all that you've revealed yourself to be. Help us to love you, O Lord, that we might serve you. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.